Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Other tone, 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 tone. This is a true story. Drapetomaniacs uses dramatizations, primary sources, and the research of black historians to depict real events and historical figures. This week's episode features MSNBC's Joy Reid and comedian Roy Wood Jr. Hi. I'm world-famous white peopleologist Michael Harriet, and welcome to Drapetomaniacs, Unshackled History. We're going to tell the little-known story of Forrest Joe, the undisputed king of the Maroon Bandits. When we hear the word revolt, most of the time we envision enslaved men like Nat Turner swinging machetes and burning down the master's house. We imagine the Underground Railroad with Harriet Tubman drop-kicking slave owners and busting people out of chains, running through the woods, trying to reach the North. But what if I told you about a different kind of resistance? One that expands our understanding of the term revolt. Acts of rebellion that may have been even more common than all those documented escapes and all the uprisings combined. And what if I told you that the white people who believed that they could morally own other human beings also thought that these moments of resistance were due to a medical illness? What you talking about, Willis? In 1851, 172 years ago in the pre-Civil War South, Dr. Samuel Adolphus Cartwright, a white pro-slavery physician, mesmerized America with a new pseudoscientific hypothesis. Cartwright delivered a paper before the Medical Association of Louisiana, and although he was previously known for his opposition to the wild idea that diseases were caused by these little microscopic ghosts called germs, Dude proposed a new mental illness called drapetomania, the disease causing slaves to run away. What? I'm serious, yo. In the May 1851 edition of the New Orleans Medical and Surgical Journal, Cartwright wrote, Most of cases that induces the Negro to run away from service is as much a disease of the mind as any other species of mental alienation and much more curable as a general rule. With the advantages of proper medical advice strictly followed, this troublesome practice that many Negroes have of running away can be almost entirely prevented, although the slaves be located on the borders of a free state within the stone's throw of the abolitionists. In his defense, it was 1851. They didn't have a lot of science stuff like that. They didn't even have Bunsen burners. I don't even think Bunsen was born yet. And they definitely didn't have the internet because you know Negro Twitter would have roasted this BS. You seen this article? What kind of white nonsense is that? Listen, my master gets that magazine, but he thinks I can't read. You know how white folks are. They keep talking about this Jesus dude wanting them to own slaves. Who the fuck is Jesus? Bruh, I don't know. They be having meetings about him on Sunday, but that's my day off, so you know. 
Cartwright's hypothesis was based on a tenet that many Americans still believe to this day. Freedom is for white people. The 41 slave owners who sent the group text we know as the Declaration of Independence believed this. While slave revolts were rare and seldom successful, white people in the South, they were obsessed with the possibility of rebellions. In their minds, the only way to prevent these drapedomaniacs from wilding out and telling slave owners, Run me my freedom, white boy, was to be as inhumane as possible. But there's always been crazy Africans who refuse to submit themselves to the inhumanity of slavery. In 1688, Virginia's general court ordered an enslaved African named Sam to be publicly whipped after he planned a significant uprising in Northern Neck, Virginia. The judge also ordered Sam's owner, Richard Metcalf, to permanently affix an iron around Sam's neck to, quote, deter him and others from the like evil practice for time to come. Jemmy, a literate Congolese captive, led a strategic 1739 rebellion in South Carolina that resulted in the Negro Act of 1740, a state law that banned all enslaved Africans from assembling, growing their own food, and even writing. But there were other rebellious Africans who never participated in revolts or plotted escapes. Some hauled ass as soon as the slave ships landing. Some, like Alabama's John Wren, refused to speak English, wear American clothes, or even live around white people because, as Wren aptly put it, there were some Africans that could nobody own. Historians commonly refer to this collective group of unownable Africans as Maroons. Most unyoked Africans didn't know about Canada, the Free States, or the Underground Railroad, so instead of running north, they hid and lived in free places without any white people. They built entire communities that are still being discovered today. Perhaps the most telling moniker for these self-emancipated Africans came from Virginia and Maryland in the Great Dismal Swampland. Nicknamed the Outlands, the Great Dismal Swamp was a region so treacherous you couldn't even get there by horse or canoe. Virginians ultimately reappropriated that adjective to describe the unassailable residents of the unconquered land. Instead, they called these freedom-inclined boys in the hood outlandish. Many of these Maroons kept themselves alive through the generosity of enslaved Africans on plantations. They hunted, fished, and sometimes raised their own crops, and some engaged in small-scale banditry and theft, but mostly they ain't bother white people, white people ain't bother them. As long as there was slavery, there were insurrections, runaways, and maroons. But the most famous dryptomaniac of the time terrified white people and gave hope to enslaved and free black people in the coastal region of South Carolina for nearly three years. Couldn't nobody own. Forrest Joe. Very little was known about Forrest before he escaped from the Carroll Plantation in South Carolina's Richland District. We know he was over six feet tall, and we know he was light-skinned, with a scar on his cheek from where someone had bitten him during a fight. His calves were also pockmarked from gunshot pellets he suffered during his encounters with fugitive slave hunters. But by the spring of 1821, 
the celebrated bandit Joe had become a hood legend. Joe had more plantation cred than that twisted T dude. And Joe ran with a tight click of maroons from the south side of South Carolina. One of Joe's best homeboys was a man named Jack, who had walked 200 miles to join Joe's crew. Joe's second best homeboy was also a dude named Jack. Apparently, Jack was a trendy name in the 1800s before the beanstalk propaganda machine took over. Together, Joe, Jack, and the other Jack formed a unit that terrified the white community more than critical race theory, absentee voting, and the Obama's terrorist fist bump combined. Like Frankie Beverly and Mays, most people in the black community knew about Joe long before the white people found out about him. He was trending on plantation Twitter whenever there was a late-night raid. The enslaved people in the forced labor camps helped firm Joe's reputation as a master bandit who could steal livestock, crops, and hundreds of pounds of lead to melt for ammunition. Oh, and they said he was magic too, but we're going to get to that. No enslaved person would snitch on Joe because everybody knows what snitches get, right? Nothing. They were already enslaved. Keep up. Plus, I think it's all right to steal from the bastards who stole black people's labor. Then, on May 21st, 1821, everything changed. We interrupt this episode of Everybody Loves Slavery to bring you some breaking news. We're getting preliminary reports that a South Carolina plantation owner, George Ford, was shot and killed on his farm a few hours ago. Joe and the two Jack boys were out killing cattle on George Ford's plantation, and one of Ford's 49 enslaved Africans dry-snitched on Joe. So Ford, one or two of his Negroes, and a white man went out to stop Joe's raid. But Joe and his merry band of thugs, they were ready and waiting. According to our sources, Ford received word early this evening that someone might be on his farm to steal cows. When Ford went to check on his cattle, he was ambushed by an all-black street gang who shot Ford. Authorities say one of the bandits were captured and will be interrogated if the lynch mob doesn't get to him first. Governor Thomas Bennett has issued a state of emergency and offers $168 for any information leading to the arrest of anyone involved. If you'd like to join the lynch mob, I'm sorry, militia, there's a sign-up sheet at the general store next to the saloon. Officials are advising everyone to hide their kids, hide your wife. They're shooting everyone out here. Back to you, Michael. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. The militia was no match for Joe. 
They reported that he knew some kind of magic. They said that he had extra long legs, which allowed him to cover vast distances very quickly. That he was impervious to bullets. They said he was damn near invisible. They said practically anything but admit the truth. Joe had outsmarted them. He had found a way to stain his clothing in different shades of brown. The makeshift camouflage helped him blend into the background. But perhaps the most incredible part of Forrest's gear was the upper garment he'd fashioned for himself. It was made from material through, quote, which no ball could well pass. That's right. In 1821, Joe had created a bulletproof vest. But sure, let's go with magic. Joe and his boys escaped in a canoe that they had hidden at the mouth of the Santee River. The stories of Joe's escape began to spread and worry white South Carolinians all over the state. Accomplices would also carry out many of the late night raids, but attribute them to Joe, Jack, and the other maroon gangsters. Plus, many enslaved people adhered to the mind your business rule, which enhanced Joe's reputation as a master bandit of mythic proportions. I don't know if you're checking your DMs, but if you are, you might want to stay away from the general store. My cousin said that Miss Mammy said she heard that they're out there looking for you. Be careful, man. If you're near the James Plantation, Miss Mammy gave me some macaroni to give you. Joe was blowing up. Like he was freeing people. He was making white people mad. Other people was hearing about him and running away to join him, which was increasing South Carolina's maroon population. The captives who stayed on the plantations would even help him out with inside information and intelligence. For many, ensuring Joe's survival was a form of resistance in and of itself. Hey Joe, this is Cheryl. You don't know me, but I just heard my master say the militia will be down by the creek looking for you. They'll be driving a brown horse and another brown horse. And if they don't catch you, well, let me know what you're doing next Thursday night. I'll be picking cotton from sunup till sundown, but if you want to get into something after that, hit me up. Ford's killer would have remained a mystery, but one of the Jacks really liked oxtails, so when he returned to retrieve the cattle, one of Ford's men hid behind a dead ox and captured him. Two weeks later, one of the Jacks was hanged, but not before confessing that Joe was the ringleader. That same day, Forrest Joe struck again. We have an update on the situation of the fugitive. Everyone is now calling Forrest Joe. Today, Joe was spotted by Harold and Harriet Jenkins, a free black couple in Georgetown. We now go live to the scene. Harriet, tell us what happened today. Well... I was in the kitchen cooking some greens, and you know you have to wash your greens real good. A lot of people don't wash their greens that good because they nasty. But if it's one thing I can't stand, it's gritted greens. Now, we don't have running water, but let me tell you how you do it. You put the greens in a basin, and you get another basin of water to pour over the greens. Harriet, what in the hell does this have to do with Forrest Joe? Harold, the man asked me what happened, so I'm telling him what happened. Anyway, when you was washing greens in that basin, you have to put them in the other basin, and you wash them again. Now, here's the key. You gotta use new water. See, a lot of people use the same water and end up with muddy greens, but not me. My greens be clean because I use two waters. You got to use two waters, you understand? Yes, ma'am. Is that when you saw Forrest Joe? I 
only saw him for a second. My husband talked to him, though. Yep, I sure did. Pretty nice fella. Tall, too. Say about 6'3". You, you, you don't got the sense God gave you. He looks short to me. Don't listen to her. She got bad eyes. She can't even see the dirt on them darn greens. Anyway, he was sort of dark skin. He looked light-skinned to me. He was fine, though. Lord, he was fine. I told you she can't see worth a damn. What did he say to you, Mr. Jenkins? He asked me for some bacon and some corn. I gave it to him, too, because I was scared out of my mind. Now, normally, I would have knocked him out and held him till the white folks got here, but he was too quick. Strong as an ox, too, and when I grabbed him, he lifted me clean over his head with one hand and took the bacon and corn with the other. And Mrs. Jenkins, what were you doing when all of this was going on? Fanning myself. Child, he was so fine, it was all I could do to keep from fainting. I did ask him if he wanted some greens, though, but it seemed like he was in a rush. He ran out the door and headed south. Don't listen to her. I think he was headed north. I told him not to come back this way, though. Unfortunately for the authorities, the unharmed black couple couldn't give them any useful information. Another enslaved woman was in her master's home when Joe busts in and somehow found all the owner's ammunitions, guns, and powder. Thankfully, the woman was unharmed. But some people thought it was strange that she didn't scream or alert the neighbors to Joe's presence. I mean, it was kind of weird that she waited calmly until her now unarmed enslaver returned to the house. Hey, 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 what's up, Slave Book? I'm just waiting for a few people to join the lab before I start. Oh, that's a nice tattoo. Oh, thanks at Give Us Free 19, but it's actually just a giant scar. Okay, I'm gonna... Hey, everyone. Yeah, hi. All right, I'm starting. Okay, so I wanted to get on here real quick because I've been hearing rumors. Hey, welcome. We pulling numbers today. Okay, I heard the stories about how I let Joe into my master's house to take all the guns and ammunition and some other things that were hidden in the basement. And I just wanted to state for the record, I did not let nobody take anything. People take what they want to take, okay? Why am I in it? Story time, I guess. I was in the big house sweeping minding the business that doesn't pay me when joe burst in asking where all the guns were and i'm like nigga i don't know there and i point at the display guns i thought about screaming but i was like like shook you know let me ask y'all has a big tall handsome well-built strong looking man ever walked up on you when you ain't expecting it it's a lot it's a lot cute top omg thanks i picked it out myself and what was I supposed to do? Fight him? Knock something over and get a whooping? For what? For whom? I did what anybody would have done in my situation. I took him by the hand, which is literally me being polite, strolled to where my master keeps the rest of the guns because, again, he was a guest. I didn't want to be rude. Oh, and he was scary and stuff. I told him, I said, please, Forrest Joe, don't hurt me. Then I got him something to eat. I asked him if he wanted to take a nap. And yes, I rubbed his feet and fixed him a couple of sandwiches to take with him. But, but, I was trying to keep him here until Master got back with his Elmer's glue posse. You do what you must when you fear him for your life, okay? Okay. Wasn't that true with him on Cena? Uh-uh, no. I don't want to see any more comments about the rumors that Joe and I were out last Thursday night at the barn. Because first of all, I was here praying. So clearly that was somebody else cuddled up with Joe laughing and kissing. And if you got something to say to me, take that up with the good Lord in heaven. And while you're at it, can you ask him for my freedom? A sister can use a little help. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? 
Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. In 1822, three men reported that they had severely wounded Joe. But Joe somehow made a miraculous recovery that no one could understand. Maybe it was black magic. Perhaps Joe was a witch or a ghost. Whatever he was, Joe was driving the white folks crazy with fear and trepidation. Hello, we're back with the latest on Forrest Joe. Today, the Charleston City Gazette printed an account of an armed group of runaway Negroes robbing people outside the city. According to the story, several enslaved men were headed to town to buy supplies for their owners when they were stopped and robbed of their master's money and goods. One of the victims spoke to us earlier and had this to say. Some dude named Joe robbed us, took all master's money, made us hang out with him all day, then he just let us go. Seriously, that's what happened. You can ask my friends, I ain't lying. After detaining the victims, this evil band of thug robbers who somehow still had the morals to not harm the people they were accosting, decided to let the servants go and even told them what to tell their masters when they got back to the plantation. The black victims dutifully delivered prepared statements to the plantation owners. And he sent us back and told us to tell y'all not to come looking for him or he'll do you like he did Ford. He looked like he meant it, too. Also, he said you should give me a few days off or he gonna kill you. Now, you know I love working in the fields, but that's what the man said. And he looked mad as hell. So I wouldn't cross do it if I was you. By 1823, Joe was a veritable superhero. Because of his exploits, his name rang out louder in the streets than Marlowe Stanfield. Black people were out looking for him, fueling the aura of power around him. Others were joining him. When the slave patrol questioned the enslaved Africans, they would lie to throw them off his scent. Joe had managed to curate an intelligence network and a disinformation machine. This was part of the reason he was so hard to catch. The good white people of South Carolina were going out of their minds, expecting this rabid band of Negro thugs to show up any minute. But they hadn't seen anything yet. Joe partnered with an enslaved woman to run a scam on the man who enslaved her, who was this wealthy French doctor, right? She ran away and pretended that Joe had kidnapped her and would only release her if the wealthy doctor paid a ransom. But before they could put their plan into action, the enslaved driver of South Carolina's former governor took it upon himself 
to sneak into Joe's camp and quote-unquote rescue the woman. And y'all know Joe was 38 hot. He told everyone what he would do if he saw this dude in the streets. Joe was not about to let some off-brand driver play him like that, so Joe vowed to kill the driver. Everyone begged Joe not to kill that man because, remember, the driver belonged to the former governor. But you know Joe wasn't a particularly cautious fella. He would not be deterred. On August 29, 1823, over two years after he killed George Ford, Forrest Joe pulled the stunt so crazy it made national headlines. We're back with you with a serious update on Forrest Joe. This afternoon, Forrest Joe walked onto the plantation of former South Carolina Governor James Birchall Richardson. He pulled out a gun and shot the Richardson's enslaved driver dead. And then Joe fired more shots at the overseer, a white man. Authorities say they are meeting tonight at the general store to form a paid group to find the fugitive once and for all. Joe had been best known for his midnight raids and eluding hunters under the cover of darkness. But when he did this on a former governor's plantation, there was no longer any doubt that Forrest Joe was real. In their panic, the Joe hunting militia offered to reward, quote unquote, certain Negroes to snitch with the promise of absolutely no stitches. The group even promised to free any enslaved person who helped them find Forrest Joe. Hey, 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 what's good, folk? What's good, Maroons? It's crazy out here. Got the whole state of South Carolina shook right now. Trying to enter, brother, but see, Forrest Joe don't get got. Forrest Joe do the getting. Oh, you think I ain't heard what the white folks saying about me? Trust and believe the plantations is talking. Talking about Joe this, Joe that, Joe I, I, I. I heard they say I know magic. Bro, you think if I could disappear in the thin air, I'd still be hanging around here? Look, I don't know no magic, okay? I'm just smart enough to know that I can't be running around them all-white clothes y'all be wearing. All you gotta do is take some of that hen and indigo they be making y'all grow and dye your clothes so you blend in with the background. I think I heard the white folks call it camouflage, but hell, I learned that back in the motherland. And I heard a newspaper say I'm impervious to bullets. Excuse me, impervious to bullets. I don't even know what impervious means. All I know, all I did was melt down some lead and line my coat with it. They'd rather say I know magic than just admit that I outsmarted all them white people in South Kakalaka. For months, all the black people kept quiet. Then, in October 1823, an enslaved riverboat driver named Royal decided to take the money and lead a militia to Joe. He knew Joe and his boys were lying in wait to rob riverboats. And when Joe's crews pounced, the militia surrounded them. They scared of what I represent. Freedom! freedom. That's why I went on Governor Richardson's plantation, to show we ain't playing no games. You come for me, I'm coming for yours. And if they keep messing with me, I'ma burn everything down. I'ma be out here in these streets until my last breath. I'm imperivous to pain. You know Joe couldn't go out like no punk. He had already vowed to never be taken alive. So Joe and his surviving crew of only three other Maroons charged right into that sea of angry white boys. And they shot Joe dead. Damn. Y'all hear what they did to Forrest Joe? Yeah, they killed my man. This poor one out for the homie. 
After Joe's death, the South Carolina militia raided Joe's camps and killed many Maroons, including a three-year-old child. One of the women severely wounded in the raid was waiting for Joe to return. You know her. She was the woman he supposedly kidnapped. For added measure, those bastards cut off Joe's head and put it on a stake at the mouth of the river as, quote, a warning to vicious slaves. There is no record that that snitch royal ever received his monetary reward or was even set free. But the South Carolina militia that killed Forrest Joe and swindled Royal would continue to hunt Maroons and fugitive slaves. And it would change South Carolina and the South forever. During Joe's almost three-year-long terror campaign, South Carolina's legislature essentially made it illegal for Black people to be free in the state. They outlawed manumission, the right of a slave owner to set a slave free. They banned free black people from entering the state and imposed a tax of $50 per year on any free black person already living there. That's about $1,220 a day, you know, like a stimmy. Any black person who couldn't pay the freedom tax could be re-enslaved. South Carolina's draconian laws were the direct result of the legend of Forrest Joe. Scholars routinely cite Boston as having the nation's first municipal law enforcement agency, which was created in 1838. And technically, they're correct. However, on October 2nd, 1823, the citizens of Pineville, South Carolina, met in the town library to, quote, devise a plan for apprehending or dispersing a gang of desperate runaways. The group began immediately collecting money from the town's citizens to solve its scary maroon problem. So 28 years before Cartwright discovered the disease causing slaves to run away, 15 years before the General Court of Boston passed the law to organize its day patrol, Pineville's newly formed standing committee came up with a remedy for white fear and a vaccine for those insufferable drapetomaniacs. And just like Samuel Cartwright, they gave it a brand new name. They called it the Pineville Police Association. Anyway, I got to bounce, fam. Look, yo, thanks to everybody for looking out. Shout out my brother Jack, all the fallen soldiers in the struggle. Y'all hold it down. I heard my brother Denmark Vesey got big things popping off soon. Y'all make sure to look out for that. It'll be in the book. Make sure you hide it from the white people. My brother Nat Turner up there in VA. Hold your head up, Nat. Until then, y'all keep looking out for a brother. I appreciate y'all. I'm out. Whether you call them maroons, outlandish, or drapetomaniacs, there will always be black people who can't nobody own. And the response is always the same. White fear. Your first name is Freedom. Last name is Dumb. But you still believe in where we're from. Drapetomaniacs is a collaboration between Other Tone, Sony Music Entertainment, and Queer Media. This podcast is produced by Nolika Radway and Moses Shoyola with support from senior producer Janicia Francis, managing producer Joanne DeLuna, and production coordinator Homero Radway. 
Executive producers for this show are Pharrell Williams and Scott Venner. Our team includes Silas Miami, Dallas Rico, Roderick Morrow, and Danielle Solomon. Special thanks to voice actors Glory Radway, Andrea O'Brien Vives, Jason Vives, and David Easton. Our sound engineer is Sam Baer. Our fact checker is LaPortia Thomas. Music supervisor is Tim Hotep Aku. The theme song is Freedom by Pharrell Williams. This episode features Nuck If You Buck by Crime Mob and music by Humphrey Dennis. On the next episode of Drapetomaniac's Unshackled History.